0: this washington post live podcast is sponsored by bank of america what would you like the power to do you're listening to a podcast from washington post live bringing the post's newsroom to life on stage south bend indiana mayor pete Buttigieg began 2019 as a newcomer on the national stage and now he's emerged as one of the top contenders for the democratic nomination on december 13th the washington post live sat down with Buttigieg for a one-on-one interview covering key campaign issues and his plan to win the Democratic nomination. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter with The Washington Post. Really appreciate you all coming out again for another Post Live interview. And Mayor Buttigieg, you began this series back in May. Really appreciate you coming back. Thank you for your time. Very glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with policy Afghanistan. My colleague Craig Whitlock here at the Washington Post did an investigation about the Afghan war. It's a wonderful series in depth. If you have a chance to read it, the Afghanistan papers. What's your reaction to it and all of its information as a veteran? Well, it's an extraordinarily
1: important piece of work and of reporting, Uh, although I would also say that there's been a general sense without the documentation to prove it, of exactly the kind of drift and confusion and sometimes deception or self-deception that was revealed there. When I think about how it relates to my service, I'm thinking about the fact that I thought I was one of the very last troops turning out the lights when I left years ago. And right now, somebody in Indiana is packing their bags, getting ready to go over, who possibly was not alive on 9-11 and is wondering exactly why they're going. And this shows us why we need to end America's longest war. What we see is what happens when the American people are not fully participating in the debate or the management of a conflict. This is supposed to be something that our democratic political process has a handle on. And yet it feels like there's been more and more drift since 9-11 that has not only a lot of confusion over the mission in Afghanistan, but troops deployed all around the world pursuant to an authorization that was passed in order to deal with Al-Qaeda. You know, when we lost troops in Niger, there were members of Congress who admitted they didn't know we had troops there. And it's one of the reasons why I believe as president that authorizations for the use of military force ought to have a three-year sunset, that if a president concludes we've got to be there any longer than that, the president should have to go back to Congress and sell it, because Congress also must step up to its role. And if troops can summon the courage to go serve overseas, I think that our members of Congress need to be ready to summon the political courage to take these up or down votes on whether they ought to be there in the first place.
0: Staying abroad, the U.K. held its election last night. Conservative Boris Johnson remains its prime minister. Any lessons for U.S. politics from what happened across the pond?
1: It's a little tough to draw comparisons because, of course, they're dealing with this Brexit issue that is just different than anything going on in the United States. I do think it's a good moment to remind ourselves that a <laughs> conservative in a place like the U.K., would probably be considered a center-left Democrat in a place like the US. Right, the, the climate policies, uh, even a lot of the health and social policies that are considered more right or center-right over there uh, are not at all welcome in today's American Republican Party. And so if anybody wants to look at lessons from across the pond, uh, while a lot of the talk, of course, is about the struggles that labor has had Uh, and what that means for the left. What does it mean for the left? Well, it means that you've got to be ready to build a coalition and gather that majority. But here's the thing. In America today, most Americans are with us, and by us I mean with my party, on every major issue, from areas where the Democratic Party has been trusted all along, like wages and the need to have a higher minimum wage, uh, working conditions and the need to have paid family leave, Health care and the need to expand health care. Taxes and the need to make sure that the wealthy pay their fair share. But not only on those issues. Issues where my party's been on defense for a long time, like immigration or gun policy. Most Americans, including most Republicans, most gun owners, get why we need at least to have universal background checks and things like red flag laws to disarm domestic abusers and others who are dangerous. And you'd never know it watching TV or watching the behavior of this Congress. Ideas that that command a majority of the American people can't seem to get a majority in Washington. And what we need to do right now is galvanize, not polarize, an American people that is ready to deliver these kinds of reforms, but right now.
0: There are polarizing issues in the news today. Impeachment, House Judiciary Committee formally voted to move two articles of impeachment toward a floor vote. What's your response to the House Judiciary Committee vote along party lines this morning?
1: Well, the House was left with no choice by the president behaving time and time again in ways that uh, are an absolute affront to basic American values and constitutional norms. I just saw on the way in here that he managed to insult a Purple Heart recipient uh, with with, uh, another personal attack
0: on the president. You're referencing the president's comments this morning about Lieutenant Colonel Vidman.
1: Right. So there's the broader pattern of behavior that that is an affront to our values. And then there's the, the fact that there were documented abuses of power, not only things that emerged in the hearings, but just stuff that we watched the president do in plain daylight that require a response. And something as grave and as serious and as historic as the impeachment process is not something we can view through a partisan or political lens. I will say it is tragic that unlike what we've seen in, for example, the, the uh, run up to the resignation of Nixon, that the Republican Party has decided to continue riding this tiger uh, until it finally devours them. But it doesn't change the fact that this should be something that's beyond politics.
0: Should there have been more articles of impeachment, or are you comfortable with these two, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress? You know, I'll leave it to the House to decide the, the
1: boundaries of a resolution. Uh, the problem, of course, is that there was such a menu of horrifying abuses of power that uh, you had to kind of narrow it down. I mean, the, the number of things that this president has done that are at least in principle potentially impeachable is dizzying. At a certain point, they've got to pick uh, and make a case, and that's what they're doing.
0: Some moderate Democrats are a little uneasy about this upcoming impeachment vote on the floor. Is it the duty of Democrats in the House to vote to impeach this president on these two articles?
1: Well, they would certainly get my vote. And I think the the broader issue right now is that we have to draw a line about what kind of conduct is acceptable. Look, presidents might look back at this moment 100 years from now when they are evaluating whether no one's above the law or whether a president can get away with anything. And I think it's important for the future as well as for the present that we draw that line.
0: You brought up the President's comments about Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. If you're the Democratic nominee, you could get a political punch to the face every day from President Trump. You may not want to deal with it, but you would have to deal with it. Are you ready for that kind of environment, these kind of comments? Yeah, I'm not that worried for it. Uh, Look. (laughs) What gives voters confidence that you're ready for that hostility, that kind of environment?
1: First of all, I'm gay and I grew up in Indiana, so I'm used to, you know, that kind of, that kind of schoolyard talk doesn't bother me. Um, I've also seen a lot worse incoming than a tweet full of typos. And you can tell, by the way, that this president hasn't figured out uh, what to do or say about me, Uh, although I I will admit that it did bother me when he said that he dreams about me because um, I don't know what exactly goes on in this president's dreams, but I am certain that I want absolutely nothing to do with them. Um, but you know, with me as the nominee, this president's going to have to confront, first of all, somebody who actually comes from and lives in the kinds of communities he pretends to speak for, right? As he's, look, Middle America is mostly flyover country to him. It's it's what he sees out the window of his helicopter on his way to a golf course with his name on it. Uh, I actually live in an industrial Midwestern community where my friends and neighbors and the folks I went to school with are seeing the consequences of a president who talks a big game about caring for American workers and the working class, and meanwhile continues to act in ways that only benefit the wealthiest and the corporations. We're gonna point that out. Uh, I live a short jog from the nearest cornfield. We're gonna talk about this president's abandonment of American farmers, whether it's true through the trade wars or how he's handling things like ethanol. And I'm certainly ready to respond to the chest-thumping militarism of a president who pardons war criminals and who talks about decorated veterans the way he did once again today and compare what he did and what I did when each of us had the opportunity to serve. I'm not worried about taking on this president. I'm worried about the fact that we must not only deal with him and end the Trump era, but be ready for what's next. This election, by definition, is a contest. To be the president who can lead America the day that the sun comes up and Donald Trump's no longer the president. It's not just about how much we want that day to come. It's about the fact that on that day, our country will be dangerously divided, frighteningly polarized, and yet all of these issues we've been talking about will still be crying out for urgent action. We're going to need a president who can deliver bold solutions to those issues without measuring the boldness of an idea by how uh, alienating it can be to some Americans or how divisive it is. Uh, because we've also got to be ready to unify the American people.
0: You may be bold, Mayor. However, you referenced your profile, your upbringing in Indiana. You've now traveled to Iowa, South Carolina, states across this country. Is this nation ready for a gay president? Absolutely. Look,
1: when I reached the personal, personal conclusion that it was time to come out, I, it was during the course of the deployment. Uh, I hadn't felt like I was missing out that much by not having a personal life because I was very busy as mayor and when anybody asked about my dating life, I'd say truthfully that the city was a jealous bride. But um, when I came face to face with the possibility as I was writing my letter before I left that I might not come back and that if if I didn't, I would have left this world as a grown man, uh, an elected official, a war veteran, with no idea what it was like to fall in love. Uh, I thought that's, that's unacceptable and it's gotta change. So, so I came home, safe, thank God, and decided I needed to do this, and it was an election year. And I'll never forget the look on my campaign manager's face when I said, hey, I gotta tell you something that will complicate your job a little bit. <laughs> Mike Pence was the governor of Indiana. No mayor in Indiana had ever come out. And so there was no way to really know what to expect. My community, um, not unlike a lot of places that I travel uh, in the course of this democratic process, is generally democratic, but socially conservative Mm -hmm. Democrats. Uh, And we didn't
0: know what would happen. What happened was I got 80% of the vote. So South Bend was ready, but is this nation ready?
1: If it can happen in Mike Pence's Indiana, then it can happen anywhere in this nation.
0: You've spent a lot of time on the campaign trail in recent weeks, meeting with African-American leaders, going to their communities. You've engaged with that community in South Bend as mayor, but what have you learned in recent weeks? Anything new? What has the experience taught you as you've engaged with African-American voters and leaders in different states?
1: Well, one of the things we're seeing that's not new, but we're, we're talking about it in new ways is the extent to which there are a lot of African-American voters who feel not only abused by the Republican Party, but sometimes taken for granted by Democrats. Uh, I remember the pastor when I was first running for mayor who said, hey, um, I'm glad you're here, but everybody knows how to come to church before an election. And it was very important for me that he see the work we would do. In fact, right now we're partnering with, uh, with him and his church on low-income housing in, in that neighborhood. But similarly nationally, one of the things I've seen is how even now folks pe- feel passed over. Uh, I'll give you an example. In our most recent trip to South Carolina. remember, South Carolina is an early primary state, right? the kind of state that gets a lot of attention in presidential elections. We went to Allendale County, it is the Poorest county in South Carolina by many measures, and met with local leaders and Democrats there, uh, including extraordinary African American women who are leading at the forefront of the local party, uh, as they have been the backbone, not only in the South, but especially in the South, of propelling us to wins in elections. And they told me they hadn't seen a presidential candidate in more than a decade. And it was so important to have the conversation about what they were seeing and what they were living, largely because I think it challenges a lot of the assumptions that go into the political coverage. So the assumption that, for example, we can either reach out to rural America, which people imagine in a very kind of white way, or we can focus on issues of racial justice. uh, Overlooking places like Uh, South Carolina and so much of the rural South where talking about rural issues is talking about racial justice because there are so many African American families living that struggle of underinvestment in rural communities. Just as in my hometown, uh, it makes no sense to act as though there's a choice between supporting auto workers and, and talking about lunch bucket issues and caring about racial justice and making sure that uh, African-American and Latino families can get ahead because
0: so many of our auto workers are in fact uh, from African-American and Latino families. There remains skepticism, though, Mayor. This week, Democracy in Color released a report on your record on racial issues in South Bend, specifically on the record of hiring and contracting diversity, a very low percentage, according to this report, going to minority business enterprises. What's your response to that report?
1: My response is that we we created not only a lot of work to address this issue, but some of the very same numbers that are being used now for political attacks because I thought it was important to do that in order to make progress. When I took office, we didn't have the resources to even gather the data on what was going on, but we knew that as a city, we needed to do a better job of doing business with businesses owned by African-Americans because it's, nobody has a better track record of creating economic opportunity for minority employees than minority employers. So immediately we started doing work to, for example, bring folks to the table with small businesses, let them know how to get involved in city business. We saw that wasn't gonna be enough. So I created the first office of diversity and inclusion specifically not just to have meetings or trainings but, but, but to create a concrete plan for acting. Now under Indiana law, there's a lot of steps you gotta take before you can uh, establish hard targets, but we took those steps. We, uh, I ordered up the very audit that told us what we already knew, but we needed to be able to prove, which is that the numbers needed to grow. And it wasn't just how business was being allocated, it was what we had to begin with. So only, I think by one measure for a category of contracts, we wanted to make sure it was more diverse. Only 3% of the businesses in our area that could have done it were African American to begin with. But we didn't just say, oh well, Not a lot of businesses are in that category, so we're doing okay. We accepted responsibility not only for working to boost the level of purchasing that we do with minority-owned businesses, but also to make sure more of these businesses emerge. That's why we set up an incubator on the west side in one of the most historically underinvested and historically black parts of the community to try to create more resources and mentorship for businesses that are growing. So my point is that, of course, we haven't, solved or ended these inequities or issues, in our city or in any place in America. What I'll say is that I have acted with commitment and that I'm determined to use the powers of the presidency to act, because if we're talking about the entire federal government and the entire nation's worth of uh, minority-owned businesses creating opportunity, there's no reason why we can't have 25% of taxpayer resources. Uh, that are spent with businesses somewhere going out in a way that's actually gonna increase opportunity with businesses led by those who've been excluded.
0: Speaking of commitment, can you commit to minority voters who may remain wary of you or still have lingering questions that you will put a person of color on the ticket if you're the Democratic presidential nominee?
1: I'll say this, racial diversity and gender diversity. Why can't you make the commitment? I don't think it's responsible for me to say something that would disqualify anybody right now. But what I will say is that the top consideration, well, of course, the top consideration for vice president is somebody who would be prepared to lead this country in the event that I'm killed or unable to serve. Among those who meet that bar, and by the way, we're not just talking about the vice presidency, but also in building a cabinet, racial diversity and gender diversity are extremely important, not only because it is the right thing to do from a justice perspective, but because organizations make better decisions, and so do countries, when their leadership is diverse. That has benefited us at home, uh, in, and it's benefited us on our campaign. We are a better campaign because 40% of our team are people of color, and the majority of our team are women. And I'm. I have also made the commitment, I'm not sure if anybody else has, that my cabinet will be at least
0: 50% women, too. What's your reaction, and does it bother you, when you see protesters outside of your fundraisers in recent days calling you a corporatist, calling you Pete Romney? What's your response to those protesters and that critique? Well, it is a little
1: strange because... I think that I broadly share the same values and goals as a lot of these folks. I, it's a little hard to have a conversation with them, so I, I don't know for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I'm calling for greater accountability for corporations, I'm calling for higher taxes on corporations and the wealthy, I'm calling for a living wage, I'm calling for greater union membership. And, and not just because it's the position of my party, it's because my city was destroyed by economic failures and greed that had left their mark before I was even born and that we have spent my lifetime clawing our way out of. So I'm under no illusions about all of the ways in which our current economic system has failed us. Now, part of our democratic process in all of its messy beauty is that individuals can choose whether they're gonna focus on supporting a candidate that they believe in or, uh, or coming to, to uh, something you're doing and holding up a sign or or chanting, that, that's fine, it's, it's democracy. But as we navigate these differences we do have in the party, I hope we can remember, first of all, the importance of building a campaign that can draw together and include as many people as possible. So that we don't, don't just win the presidency, but we win big enough that it sends Trumpism into the past along with Trump. But also that, that we need to do this in a way that supports the simple, necessity that when we get to next summer, and out of the 25 Democrats and counting who have wanted to be president, 24 aren't going to be the nominee. we got to rally around the one who is quick. I'm determined to do that. And we, not just as a party, but as the community of everybody in America, whether you think of yourself as a Democrat, an independent, or a a Republican of conscience who can't take what's going on in the city anymore, we need to
0: hold that together and win. It's not just protesters. Senator Warren said in a speech this week in New Hampshire that she has a rival in the race who, quote, offers top donors regular phone calls and special access when a candidate brags about how beholden he feels to a group of wealthy investors, our democracy is in serious trouble. That comment was widely seen as a reference to you. Is that a fair critique? What's your response? You know, the thing about
1: these purity tests is the people issuing them can't even meet them, right? If, uh, if doing traditional fundraisers disqualifies you from running for president, then I guess neither one of us would be here. Let's have a serious conversation about where this country is headed. And hitting somebody with a process purity test when we're in the debate of our lifetimes about what it's going to take to move this country forward in very specific policy terms, like who has a better vision on how to make sure we move to universal health care. In this country, and in broader terms, about what kind of path is needed to create that sense of belonging and replace that sense of exclusion that is defining American life. This deserves to be at the center
0: of the debate, and that's where I'm going to keep my focus. When you say you want to move toward universal health care, does that mean politically, eventually, you would like to see Medicare for all?
1: Yes. I would like to see it, but I'm not going to impose it on others. See, see the, the, the idea of Medicare for all who want it, which is what I call my plan. We set up a public plan. Uh, we make it available to everybody. If you're uninsured, you get auto-enrolled into it. So there's no such thing as an uninsured American. But if you like the plan you've got, you're, you, I'm not going to force you off of it, right? Now, either it's gonna be better than any alternative. And if that's the case, and I suspect it is, then what happens is more and more people choose it, and organically, that's how you get to Medicare for All. That's what I've been talking about from before the time I got into this race. But I'm willing to acknowledge, just in the spirit of putting a little bit of humility into our policy, that instead of just assuming that sitting here in Washington, we're gonna know what the right plan is for everybody, or even what the right timeline is for everybody to come over. We're going to let people figure it out for themselves. I trust you to figure out your own health care, especially when we create these options. And if, if I'm mistaken uh, about my plan being the best, if for some folks some other plan is better, I'm not going to take that away from you. What, what do we gain by that? The principle at stake is not making sure the government is delivering your health insurance. The principle at stake is making sure that you have health insurance without cost ever being a barrier and that there's no such thing as an uninsured American.
0: Did any of your work on health care at Blue Cross, Blue Shield in Michigan give you pause when you were with McKinsey?
1: Well, it certainly made me aware of how big an insurance company can get and how uh, governments aren't the only things that can get bureaucratic. Um, It's not like it made me an expert on healthcare. It was my first study uh, at at the company out of school, and I was mostly uh, perfecting my my skills with with things like PowerPoint and Excel. But I learned enough to get a sense of why doing something in the private sector isn't automatically better than in the public sector.
0: Any regrets about working for McKinsey? No. You talked about farmers and winning them over. President Trump announced today and a little bit yesterday, new details on this phase one deal with China on trade. One, do you buy that it's an an actual deal with China? And two, how does it shape your own campaign and your outlook on 2020 on trade and winning over those voters?
1: Well, first of all, this part one phrasing strikes me as awfully squishy. Uh, And I think it's revealing that that China has been uh, a little more cautious about how they're gonna characterize this, this deal if we have a deal. Um, It, from what I can tell, defers all of the most important issues around intellectual property, around uh, subsidies and other kinds of manipulations, to this mythical phase two that I guess uh, we're just supposed to trust him, he's going to deliver if we put him back in. Um, And meanwhile, gives away a lot of our leverage for those deals. So I guess we can count it as some relief that some of these tariffs aren't going to kick in. But... That's just uh, pouring a bucket of water on a fire that he started uh, because we, we, we shouldn't be here in the first place. And this trade war is costing farmers. It's going to cost consumers. And it's a problem created by a president who lacks any kind of strategic thinking about what we've got to do with respect to China. I'm actually more concerned about China than, than some in my party. I think that it is a big issue. I think that the rise of techno-authoritarianism, I mean the use of technology to perfect dictatorship, represents a serious challenge to the American model. But our strategy for dealing with that is going to require a lot more sophistication and a lot more strategy than just poking them in the eye with a trade wars. Well, what would
0: you do as president if China continues to treat Muslims as they are doing right now, bringing them to different camps? How would you respond if you're in the Oval Office to that?
1: Well, first of all, the president indicated that his, our president, indicated that his silence could be purchased on human rights issues, whether it's the internment of Muslims in Xinjiang or the quest for democracy in Hong Kong. And that is a nightmare for human rights, because America is only America if we're advancing not just American interests in the narrow sense, but values that have been at the heart of America's leadership around the world, at least when we're at our best, and are one of the reasons why we have the strategic edge of the community of, of nations, people around the world looking at us as a champion of things that they believe in, not as American values, but as human values. It is an affront to human values to have people rounded up and put into camps because of their religion or ethnicity, and to not hear a peep of meaningful moral support from the American president shows you just how far we've slid. And it will, be, it will have a chilling and depressing effect, not only on our adversaries, where there is comparatively less leverage, right? whether we're uh, talking about China or the behavior of other countries misbehaving right now, but also our allies. Because if, if we won't even say, we won't even offer moral support on something like that with a strategic competitor like China, what message are we sending to a player like Saudi Arabia uh, about our seriousness on issues of human rights?
0: Are we in a populist time? We brought up the British election a little bit earlier. Are you contending with the rise of populism and nationalism abroad and how you're gonna have to deal with that if you're the Democratic nominee? You may wanna make a moral case on international alliances and other issues, but maybe that's not where the country is. I
1: think where our country is, is a
0: desire
1: for some level of stability and security and confidence that our political and economic systems are actually going to deliver for us more than they have. And what's fueling a lot of instability and anger is, is the simple fact that, I mean, think about this fact. Right now, the gross domestic product of the United States is going up. Life expectancy is going down. Our, th- those two things shouldn't even be possible at the same time. And so we're going through economic growth, but it's obviously not getting to nearly enough people because we're living shorter lives. And I believe different versions of these kinds of disconnects are playing out around the world. It is precisely for that reason that American leadership is needed around the world. The world needs America right now, but but it can't be just any America. And it certainly can't be the America that President Trump has reduced us to that would just be one more country out there scrapping for advantage. We have to recognize that every time we've walked away from our values thinking that it was somehow good for our interests, that's caught up to us in the end, and it's been a mistake. Now is the time precisely because of this instability and the populism and the nationalism and the confusion and the the fraying of alliances and the the, the aging of our international institutions. This is when a robust and energetic America should work to make sure that the world is a safer place, because that also makes Americans better off. And as an American, never mind folks at a cocktail party laughing at the president, but just The looks on the faces of the leaders of the world when the president spoke at the UN earlier this year, just seeing the leaders of the world look at the president of the United States with a kind of something between pity and contempt. Maybe the president likes that. Maybe he does, I don't care. My point is as an American, it hurts. I have no idea whether it's good or bad for him, but I know that it's bad for our country. I want the leaders of the world to look to the American president for leadership, for help, for moral authority.
0: If we blow that, America is not America, and America is less safe. I was just in Florida talking to voters in the swing state, my home state, Pennsylvania, A lot of Democratic voters are attracted to your message, yet some of the more moderate voters still say Mayor Bloomberg or Vice President Biden could be a safer set of hands, seasoned leaders, to take on someone like President Trump. You must encounter that from time to time. How do you deal with that dynamic in the Democratic race? So,
1: unfortunately, my party has a long history of of overthinking the question of electability we tie ourselves up in knots trying to guess how somebody we totally disagree with might act depending who we put up. I think we ought to just look at what's happened and look, look at it this way. Over the last 50 years in American history, every single time my party has won the White House, certain things have been true. It's been a nominee who was new on the national scene and hadn't run for president before. It's been a nominee who focused on calling the country to its highest values, and generally a nominee who represented a new generation of leadership. So if that has been such a consistent pattern that you might call it a law, it is precisely in the name of risk management that I would say, are you sure? Are you sure you want to take the chance of not doing that this time around, given what's at stake in beating this president?
0: Well, it's all about beating President Trump for those voters. They do know about Carter and President Kennedy and President Clinton and President Obama. Uh, But if you're gonna have to win a state like Pennsylvania, you're gonna have to win over evangelical voters. You've talked a lot about your faith on the campaign trail, but a lot of those voters also tell reporters they vote with President Trump because of the courts. Will you be willing to, as the Democratic nominee, to release publicly a list of judicial candidates for the federal courts, the Supreme Court, To help give people a guide about where you would take the judiciary. I'm going to communicate
1: where I'm going to take the judiciary in terms of principles and values. Why not names? President Trump released names. Because it's about principles and values. It's about the kinds of people that we should recruit.
0: And it's about the kinds of values that
1: belong on the bench.
0: But he's giving those voters, specifically those religious voters, conservative voters, specific names, yeah. hoping they stay with him for that reason. They may not like his conduct or his behavior, That's but right. they like the judges. He thinks he can
1: purchase them with that move. And to some extent, last time around, it worked. My message to voters of faith is, right now, you've got a White House that you can't help but look at and ask yourself, What happened to I was hungry and you fed me? What happened to I was a stranger and you welcomed me? What happened to the idea of the last shall be first? And the idea that we are supposed to follow leaders who walk in the way of humility and decency. And I know that there are a lot of people sitting in the pews right now, looking both ways, and wondering whether they're really supposed to be on board with this presidency just because of a historic alignment of the Republican Party and the evangelical right.
0: It comes back to the question I asked earlier, is this country ready for a gay president? Do you believe you can convince religious voters in this country who may have concerns about some of your policy positions and even your profile to come with you on that values argument?
1: Absolutely. Look, if you're a single-issue voter and your single issue is about being anti-LGBT, then you're probably not one of the voters available to us to win over to the Democratic Party. (laughs) But for everybody else, recognizing that people come at these things differently, especially people from a generation that, that were brought up to reject what I am. One of the most moving things I've seen is how that journey to acceptance works. And we've got to make sure that this continues to be a country that moves in the direction of acceptance and inclusion, not discrimination and exclusion. And the, the simple fact is that the question on the mind of just about every voter I meet, however it gets expressed, is fundamentally some version of this question. How's my life gonna be different if you're president instead of you? If we have the right answer on those questions and we do then we're going to win
0: is there an assumption though in that answer that you're going to be campaigning if you're the nominee in a country that still has norms in american politics that still has certain unwritten rules mm. when the president shatters them every day do you accept the reality of our fractured time and our politics and how to, how, do, how will you engage with that you continue to try to seek the high road in your rhetoric and responses, but it's messy. The president's tweeting hundreds of times a day.
1: Yeah, of course it's messy. It's always going to be messy. It's, it's politics. But America doesn't want this. Even Americans who don't agree with me from a partisan or ideological standpoint, for the most part, don't want this. And what's going to matter is not just how to bring an end to this, but how to set up what comes next. And yes, we're dealing with a fractured and troubled time. We're dealing with the fact that people get their information in very selective ways. It's one of the reasons why you know, I, I took some heat for uh, going on, on uh, doing a town hall with Fox News. You know what? The heads were nodding, and the folks stood up and clapped at the end just the same there as they did at the MSNBC event. Um, we've got to reach people where they are and knit back together a country that, that is frighteningly polarized. And, Nothing about doing that will be easy. What I will say is there are steps we could be taking and sometimes are taking right now in this process in our party that will either make it easier to do it or make it harder to do it. And a big part of what I'm running is not why I'm running is not just to win the day for my ideas, my values, and my philosophy, but to be a president for all of us. Because one of the things you learn when you're a mayor is that you, in addition to all the policies you you work on and all the management you've gotta do, is that you're just a walking reminder of belonging to a city. You symbolize, just by showing up at an event, to the folks who are there, that they belong to the same city, even if they have nothing in common with each other besides the fact of belonging to the same city. That's what the president should be for us too. Even or especially, for those who didn't vote for that president, for those who disagree or belong to a different party. The presidency itself should represent some reminder that we're part of something bigger.
0: Speaking of symbols and your party, the lack of minority candidates on the upcoming debate stage, should the DNC change its rules?
1: I don't think it's my place as a candidate to tell the DNC about the rules of the game uh, and the the rules of the process that I'm in. Uh, I will say that it's troubling to to see that uh, on the debate stage. Uh, we're also, I don't envy the task of figuring out how, the, the task that the DNC has, which I know is an ironic thing to say. You so ran, for, ran DNC for DNC, DNC chair,
0: what's chair. the solution here?
1: I'm going to leave it to the DNC. And we will continue, look, when, I, when we started this thing in January, uh, and I'm looking around me and there's senators and there's very famous people running or thinking about running, uh, all I could focus on was how do we make sure we hit that threshold so that we, get a shot at standing on that debate stage, that first time. And we did it. And since then, we've made sure that, that we're in the hunt. Uh, but we need to make sure that, uh, that this is a process that surfaces all of the ideas. There's certainly no, uh, uh, no shortage of, uh, of days spent uh, among lots of candidates uh, all out there making our case. And remember, when the debate started, they had to split them across two nights just to fit us all onto a stage. And at the end of the day, we'll be up to not the DNC, not the media, but the caucus goers and the voters to decide.
0: Final question. You've been under scrutiny this week about disclosure of finances, McKinsey work. What further assurances can you offer voters who want to learn more about your time at McKinsey or who's at your fundraisers?
1: Well, first of all, I uh, disclosed my tax returns through ever since I got back from school. Not everybody's been prepared to do that. Uh, literally everybody who makes a donation that's publicly available and we're among very very few campaigns to go the further step and invite press to cover uh, events that we do uh, for, for fundraising too. Um, look, At the end of the day I'm going to run a campaign of course that's consistent with the values of not just my candidacy but what I propose for this country. I hope that we can continue to have most of this debate revolve around who has the best vision for the United States, for the American people, and for the problems we're going to have to solve that are not going to take a vacation for the impeachment process, uh, and where we don't have a moment to lose. It can't wait 10 years. It can't wait four years. We've got to act now. And this is a competition for who will be prepared not only to end the era of Donald Trump, but to launch the era that's got to come next.
0: Mayor Buttigieg, thank you. Appreciate you coming back to The Washington Post. (laughs) Appreciate it. And thank you for joining us here at The Washington Post Live. We'll have more candidates in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.